0: This podcast is brought to you by India Water Portal, a globally visited website dedicated exclusively to stories, knowledge, information and news on rural and urban water in India. Hello and welcome to Voices for Water. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Veena Srinivasan. Dr. Veena is a senior fellow at the Ashoka Trust for Research in Ecology and the Environment, or ATRI, where she leads the Centre for Social and Environmental Innovation. Veena's research includes intersectoral water allocation, impacts of multiple stresses on water resources, ground and surface water linkages, and sustainable water management policy and practice. Her recent researchers have focused on understanding the impacts of human activity on ground and surface water resources. More recently, she has initiated work on Bangalore's lakes with the goal of understanding how lakes can contribute to water security as well as creating a citizen's dashboard which synthesizes data from low-cost sensors and data that is collected by citizen scientists to help manage lakes better. Veena received her PhD from Stanford University's MIT interdisciplinary program. In the environment and resources. As a postdoctoral scholar at Stanford, Veena was instrumental in developing a framework for a global freshwater initiative at Stanford to understand patterns in the nature and causes of global water crisis. Prior to joining Stanford University, Veena worked for several years on energy and water issues in India, California, and globally in the private and nonprofit sectors. Veena holds a master's in energy and environmental sciences from the Boston University and a B. Tech in Engineering Physics from the Indian Institute of Technology, Bombay. Welcome to Voices for Water, Vina. How are you doing and where are you talking to us from?
1: Thank you so much for inviting me, Karthik. I'm talking from Bangalore.
0: How are things in Bangalore? Are you going through spring season right now?
1: Well, it's Bangalore in March is hot, but the nice thing about Bangalore is that we start getting the pre-monsoon showers by the evenings in March. So, uh, it actually cools down by the end of the day, while the rest of the country is just beginning to get scorched. Bangalore actually already beginning to cool down. So that's
0: good. Exactly. right. You you have all the envy of the of the rest of the country. We spoke uh, a little while back and uh, in preparation for this episode, I was going through your extensive body of work and, and it is really stunning the kind of stuff uh, you've done. And then uh, you have also imparted that knowledge to many. You know, I wanted to start off from a pure layman's perspective. And... Uh, Talk to you from a from an urban water consumers point of view, right? As a common citizen, what do I worry about today when it comes to water that I consume and use? How do I know where my water is coming from, and how do I know that it is safe?
1: Well, that's a good question, Karthik. I think that, as you said, you know the, what the thing that most citizens in in any large city in India are going to worry about is is my water safe to drink, and is it going to be reliable in the sense, am I going to get the quantities at the time that I need? And is that going to ha- come throughout the year or do I need to worry about a period of uncertainty? I think these are kind of the ways people frame their water, uh, their water question um, mm. uh, in, in in most Indian cities. Um, these questions are surprisingly hard to answer. And uh, the reason is in India, we get our water by very much more complicated pathways than might be in any other part of the world and i'll see why it's hard to uh, answer this question by contrast so if you lived in a london or a san francisco you're going to get most of your water in a pressurized tap connection and uh, that is going to be at a level of quality that the state utility whatever the water utility is—a public water utility has already measured and they've got these sophisticated models that can predict completely if you put this much of chlorine in at the treatment plant, then is that chlorine going to remove all of the bacteria and is that water quality going to sustain all the way until the consumer's tap. And that's how they are able to guarantee centrally whether the water in your tap is actually safe to drink. Now, in India, it's an, uh, and India is really exceptional even among the, the more developed of the global south, in that most of our cities have what is called intermittent water supply, firstly, which means that we don't get pressurized water to the tap throughout the day. Instead, we all have sums and overhead tanks. You just have to stand on a roof in a tall building in Bangalore or Bombay and you see that there are you know every roof has, a, has an overhead tank. And the water gets stored at many intermediate points before it comes to your tap. As a result, the utility can really not guarantee the water quality to a customer's tap. It depends also on whether your RWA has kept the tap clean. It depends also on whether your landlord or house manager has kept all of the water storage points clean. The second thing to say is um, the utility itself, because it's an intermittent supply system, the pipes are empty for some part of the day. That's what we mean by intermittent supply system. You get water for two hours in the morning, the rest of the day the pipes are empty. When the pipes are empty, often sewage and so on seep into the pipes. It's very difficult to prevent that. When the pipes are full of water, then you're not going to really have an opportunity for as much of you know contamination to enter pipes. But when you have empty pipes which have leaks in them, water does uh, sewage water and so on enters. So, it's very, very difficult to guarantee or even predict uh, what is going to be the water quality in your tap. And I think this leads to that feeling of uncertainty that you talked about. So, the only way a consumer can actually tell is my water safe is to actually do regular testing on their own. And what we do in cities, most of the wealthier families is put an RO system, and then we just get the RO guy to come every six months and test it and and change the filters, and we are done. But uh, that's what it really ends up taking. Uh, I don't know if that was a more complicated answer than you were looking for. The quantity answer is equally complicated, exact because we have these intermittent supply systems. Uh, it's very difficult for. To guarantee, especially in some places, if you're on a slightly higher elevation suburb or so on and so forth, that you will get sufficient water. Which is why in so many parts of the city, you know, the resident welfare associations have to get a combination of sources. They'll have tankers, they'll have bore wells, they'll have and the city supply and some combination of that. So it's a surprisingly difficult and complicated answer, which I don't have for yeah. you.
0: And, and and I think more than anything else, it's a, it's a very realistic answer as in is the state of the world we are in. You mentioned, Vina uh, RWAs and uh, I live in Delhi. Uh, we really do, I, I live in South Delhi, which really doesn't have a lot of apartment complexes. But the rest of the country, right, whether it is a, a Bangalore or, or a Chennai or a Bombay especially, we are very insulated from what is happening in the world of water, isn't it? You um, know, we're only connected through what the RW does. You know, which is provide adequate water for its residents to whatever method they can find out, right? Whatever method they can use. Sometimes it's tankers. Sometimes it's the water board, the utility. Um, sometimes it's a it's a well nearby, etc. Right? Uh, in many ways, we have no knowledge. And we are, you know, systemically insulated from understanding what happens behind the screens, right? In a situation like that, what are the steps we can take to understand both the quality and the quantity aspects of water, given that we live in such an insulated world from a knowledge perspective?
1: So, as I said, uh, you know, I think because we get water from so many different sources, the best thing you have to do is for each person to almost get on that path of self, of discovery. Go and talk to your RWA, ask them kind of, what are the sources of water to my uh, to my apartment complex? Um, have you periodically tested water? And to be fair, many RWAs are responsible and they maintain records of these kinds of things also. So some of them, we already have tests done where they would have said, these are all the parameters. Usually you're looking at coliform, you're looking at nitrate, you're looking at a few standard parameters. And the RWAs often have these reports in their records, but if not, testing water itself is not a complicated Uh, affair in any city. So, I would say if you're unsure, definitely
0: go get your water test. Got it. You know, a very important part of this consumption is the water meters that we use as a domestic user, right? Uh, How necessary are they in the larger scheme of things, right? Uh, Especially when it comes to the level of granularity of consumption, right? You know, do they work best Or are there alternate ways in which we should be doing? I think what I'm trying to ask is, what is your take on water meters and how we measure consumption today? Is that a good or a a bad thing?
1: I mean, I would say unequivocally, water metering is a good thing because not knowing how much water we are using in a water scarce world doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, you're talking about something and water may not be expensive, but even if it's not expensive, the absence of water creates significant, even if it's not on a per meter cubed expensive, the absence of water causes so much of distress that water is an extremely valuable commodity from that perspective. So I would say the answer to should we know where our water is going is unequivocally, yes, we should know. Now, uh, it's harder to do in practice than one would think because unlike electricity, which is universally metered, um, electricity enters your point only through one point in your house, which is your mains. And you have a switch and can go on and off. And so it's very easy to kind of say how much electricity are you consuming. Water, on the other hand, enters your house usually through multiple points. So if you're a single-family home, like you said, you know, in South Delhi, there are a lot of single-family homes. That is an easier proposition because the pipe mains from comes into the property itself at one point. You put a meter there and you measure it. But if it's an apartment, uh, the building it enters the pipe main and enters at one point. But from there on, it branches. And if you look at any building, you'll have one side of the building where all the kitchens are, and another side where the bathrooms are, and another side where all the toilets are. So the water is entering individual apartments at many, many different points. Which means if you want to reconstruct the water use of one apartment, you've actually got to meter at multiple points. And that's where it starts getting expensive. So if you think about the electricity connection you can do it at one point and the meter readers essentially you know just he's not even going and manually reading it now it's kind of an automatic thing but he's got to do one meter and most of the time he can do it all the way down in the basement for the entire bathroom but if you have to do it with a manual reading but you can't expect the meter reader to climb outside the pipe and look, look at the meter the 10th floor entering your bathroom which means that what you're really talking about is not the standard meters that we have today, which is like, doesn't cost much, 600 rupees, you know, at the point the main centers you're building and It's just, there's a flow meter, the water turns the little thing around and you're measuring it. But you're really talking about smart electronic meters, which must be installed in every pipe entering the house. And then you're combining all of those pieces of information to construct a water bill. That being said, although... This is a more complicated proposition. It's not an impossible proposition. Many companies now exist which provide such smart metering solutions. Uh, They are expensive in the sense of compared to an original standard meter in the olden days, which used to cost, which even today costs 600, 700 rupees, they may be a few thousand. But compared to the cost of an entire building, it's nothing, right? If you're buying a flat for like 50 lakhs or one crore, having spent 12,000 rupees on meters is not the end of the world. So I think that. Uh, it's a more complex proposition. It needs to be done. Uh, it can be done. It's a little more expensive. So, it's not something that you can expect to happen in low-income households or middle-income households. But certainly, I think for the wealthier section of society, which are also the biggest consumers, it is both possible and very much justifiable and should be done.
0: Right. You know, where I was going with this, uh, Veena, is that uh, today, this is the the best measurement that we have, right, uh, to manage this problem. and uh, you know, in, in the industry that I come from, we often say that what gets measured gets managed, right? Is this sort of data really, really helping us manage the challenges of conservation today, right? Is this data, uh, whether it is a household or a society or a, or the state, which is using this data, how much of, it, of this data today is used to plan urban water better?
1: None. Yeah. I mean, as I said, it's not necessarily available at the granularity hmm. yet. For the reasons I explained why it's difficult, there's only yeah. a handful of apartment complexes which probably have this data. Uh, mo- most of them are actually using it to just bill and say what Frank, you know, so that the apartments don't fight saying I have only one kid and you have three and you should pay more than me and you know, that sort of thing. They're using it most for kind of simple management purposes rather than proactive planning. And that's privately held data, right? If the apartment RWA puts the meter they are not, like, there's no government agency which is accessing that data or even has that data available. So, uh, and the as I said, the metering data available with the state or the public water utilities is very limited. Even cities like Bangalore, which have universal metering, have one meter for the whole building at the point of entry, which is not very useful data for the city to really understand how a household is consuming data, uh, how consuming so not easy for the utilities to figure out how our households are consuming water hmm. so um, and then it, it's important to realize as i said that the utility supplied data is only one component of data additionally they are getting this private bore wells and tankers and so on so to reconstruct the picture is difficult to, given the low quality and granularity of the data we have so long and short of it data is not being used to make any decisions.
0: That is a shame, right? Like, for example, the kind of correlations that we can make, right, with uh, who is spending uh, more amount of water and why are they using more water? There's so many correlations and so many stories we can build on that which are very actionable, isn't it? I'm assuming someone like you would would love to have that kind of data, isn't it? When you do your work. You know, I want to move, probably change tracks slightly. to. uh,
1: Can I just say one response to that? Plug for another study that was done by I.M. Bangalore, what a PhD student some faculty, where they got access to this metering data from one of these private apartment complexes, which did the smart metering that I'm talking about. So they had kind of every house, every meter, every tap sort of data. And uh, they did some very fascinating behavioral experiments where they worked with the RWA to, to show them the data in different formats and explain to them how much they were using. And they found that when people get water bills, which show the kind of usage they have and put it in context, uh, you get actually changes in behavior where people actually change and use less water and more conservatively. And more importantly, those effects persist over time. So I think that uh, it would be wonderful if more of this data is available, but at least there exists one good study by uh, somebody
0: that did that. That's amazing. It's amazing to know. And I can't imagine the kind of impact it'll have if you broad-base that right, to, to all RWAs or all, all cities for that matter. Uh, Beera, I just want to take a slight detour into something that I heard you say in one of your recent interviews where you talked about how we need to invest more in wastewater treatment. Right? Can you expand on that a little bit more and tell us why this is important?
1: Well, there are... Few different uh, reasons that you would do that. So the first thing we need to understand is when we talk about how we use water in cities or in households, urban water, most of our water returns as wastewater into the system. So if I use 100 liters, then I'm generating 80 liters of wastewater. Now, when we say we have water scarcity, um, it means that I don't have enough of the fresh water, that the, the kind of water that I would actually like to use for drinking and cooking at the time I want, and so on. But often, in a lot of the places in India, we've kind of run out of new sources of fresh water on one hand, and even the few freshwater sources and rivers that we have have gotten contaminated and are rendered unusable because we didn't treat the wastewater. So we've come across like many small towns, for example, where their primary surface water bodies have gotten contaminated with sewage and they can't be used. And so they have to drill deeper and deeper for uh, fresh water. And that has huge problems because deep fresh water has chloride and in some places arsenic and nitrate and it's contaminated and all kinds of issues. So this issue of we aren't able to use fresh water because we couldn't use our waste, we couldn't treat our wastewater, uh, is a huge problem because not only are you having to go further and further away into mountains and cutting across mountains and so on to get new access to fresh water. You contaminated your local bodies and even the aesthetic components, the fact that you would like to occasionally go for a morning jog around the lake, that's also gone away. So there's a twin problem. You've created an environmental bad, and then you've gotten away with a bunch of environmental goods because you didn't solve this problem. Um, The main thing that that should be noted is that treatment of wastewater is a solid engineering problem. We're not talking about cutting-edge science or cutting-edge engineering. I mean, you know, for if you go to any country like Switzerland or London or any other place, they've figured out how to take their sewage and direct it to a sewage treatment plant and treat it to capacity and release it into a stream or a lake and everything works just fine. Now, a lot of people would say, well, it's too expensive to do. And I would argue if you actually calculate the cost, if you actually calculate the rupee cost of how much it would cost to install wastewater treatment and even sewage, it's actually not that much compared to the other stuff we spend uh, in So, a place like Bangalore, if you had to like get all the sewage treatment we wanted, uh, it would probably be 1000 crores, which is not anything compared to the steel flyover of like 1800 crores that was being proposed a few, uh, couple of years ago. So, the long and short of it is that if we don't start thinking of sewerage and wastewater treatment, we are actually going to make our water problem just that much harder when it doesn't need to be. Um, and so that's one of the reasons i talk about wastewater because i genuinely think that it's hmm. the entry point to securing fresh
0: water right you know, that leads me to a question which probably has two parts right one is um, you know at atri you're doing some path breaking work on the science of water and um, i wanted to ask you how that connects with communities with whom you know you, you work with that's one part and since we're talking communities and for many of the things you said about both the wastewater as well as water measurement, I'm assuming the role that is played by the civil society is very critical in this whole thing, isn't it?
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Can, can you talk to both of these aspects?
1: So, firstly, I think that even though ATRI is a research institution, very much committed to putting out, some doing socially relevant science, that's what we call it, and engaging with community society to ensure that the science is taken up, I think one of the problems that we face overall in in these institutions is there still remains a gap between the doing of science and then the uptaking of science into solutions now at atri and i should just plug myself we've started a new center called the center for social and environmental innovation which aims to place this bridging role to say that okay we've got really good science how do we kind of work very, very closely with other civil society institutions as well as citizen groups, uh, including RWAs, including the lake groups and so on to do a very, very detailed translation role of how do you take that science and where does it embed into the activities that those communities do on a day to day basis or uh, because that plugging in role of exactly like kind of almost spoon feeding or packaging or whatever you want to call it, the science. Into the kinds of capacities and the activities that these other societal agencies and organizations do, that itself requires additional work. And so that's one of the things that we've now started, also. Uh, I can give you an example if you're interested. We talked about wastewater earlier. One of the things we realized is that when we look at a lot of uh, Bangalore, at least, is very, very pioneering in mandating decentralized wastewater treatment plants. So every large apartment complex is supposed to have its own waste water treatment plant. Now often an RWA, I mean, the people who run it, they are just people who are kind of going about their everyday lives and this is just one other thing they do right. with their time. They are not like wastewater engineers and often what we find is the there's a the, when the plant breaks down, they kind of don't know who to call, how to diagnose and so on. So a lot of the stuff we can do is in terms of capacity building to say uh, some of it might just be, here's how you diagnose, here's how you, sh- you make sure you're not being ripped off. Here's how you kind of go through the understands the basic of the different wastewater treatment systems. Here's what you can do with excess water. Here's a reasonable way you can test your water to make sure it's safe for this type of end use. That sort of thing of repackaging the science where science tends to state things in very accurate and scientifically rigorous, but not necessarily accessible language to kind of repackage it in ways that these organizations are able to absorb. So I think that this entire spectrum of starting at the science and ensuring that it gets embedded in society is an endeavor. And it's something that we are interested in in engaging.
0: And now that you mentioned it, this decentralization of wastewater management, is that a positive thing or does it actually create more roadblocks by itself?
1: <laughs> it's an interesting thing because uh, I would say it's a double-edged sword. You're fair. It's a fair question. We started decentralization in Bangalore because we didn't have the money. To put it in large switch treatment plants, central switch treatment plants. And um, as a result, we, you know, it was one way for the utility to say, look, we just don't have any money, please we'll take care of this. That doesn't necessarily mean decentralization is desirable. And especially as you correctly are alluding to, a lot of these players don't have the capacity. On the other hand, the rest of the world is kind of looking at India and saying, you know what, if you can do things in a decentralized way, but do them well. Then you kind of change the paradigms of cities completely, because you don't have to create these mega destructive infra- infrastructure. You, instead of so, imagine a city where all of the waste and all of the liquid waste and solid waste both were being completely treated on site and safely. And what the buildings were doing was actually putting out energy and compost and fresh water. You know, imagine how much of a better uh, environment we would have how much of better livability. Now, the question is, is that possible? I would say technically it's possible. Um, There are some institutional changes that we need to do. Some ways that we think about processes differently. Some ways that we think about other things differently in terms of how do we build capacity, how do we train uh, engineers. But we have, you know, if you have a washing machine or if you have an RO or if RO system in your house, you have a system where a guy who has a certification comes and tests it and gives you, You know, has an annual maintenance contract and he gives you, comes and services it every six months. So we've figured out how to make uh, complicated tasks into appliances Mm. in in a fairly streamlined way. That so much so that we don't think about it. So I think that for decentralized wastewater treatment to become viable uh, and really uh, not be this roadblock that you're talking about, we do need to get there. I think it's desirable to get there it's, and it's possible to get there. It's just that we need to figure out this process to, to get us all there. All of the social processes that require us to get there. But as a society, it's no more complex than running a car or a washing machine or some other kinds of you, you know appliances that you have in your house.
0: It gives me hope that you're hopeful about it. Uh, because uh, honestly, I would tell you, you know, as I have been doing research right, for this podcast, every data point that I see is uh, is so scary, right? And uh, I'm always looking at, you know, where is the silver lining in this whole thing, which also, you know, brings me to my next question, which is, you know, you're dealing with... these data points on an everyday basis, right? What are some of the key data points that you can share with us regarding the state of water availability in this country, right? Because there are a lot of scary headlines that we get to see. I would love to, you know, hear you from a nuanced perspective, right? And any anecdotes, uh, you know, that you have experienced, right? in, In your experience of working on water and working with communities in this space.
1: I don't have a lot of happy statistics, For India as a country. Because I think that we, if you look at it from a, you know, what fraction of our rivers are polluted, uh, Mm -hmm. what fraction of our groundwater is contaminated, uh, what fraction of our um, groundwater, you know, what fraction of blocks in the country are overexploited in terms of groundwater. These are all alarming statistics. And it is something that I worry about uh, a lot. All of those three statistics, which I think are relevant for us to look at. Right? what fraction of our rivers are polluted? Primarily sewage. What fraction of our groundwater is contaminated? What fraction of our groundwater is over exploited? Um and Uh, And maybe what fraction of our water-dependent ecosystems have been destroyed. I think those four is what I would look at as data points. They all four aren't positive today. So that is a matter of concern.
0: If I may ask, what is the answer to these fractions, all of these four?
1: So in terms of rivers, I think I don't know the number off the top of my head because we don't have monitoring at every river stretch. But all our major rivers are polluted. So I don't think in terms of the main stretches, I don't think there's any river in India that's not polluted. And I think all of us have lived in big cities enough to know that if you go to any big city, you know, at least the urban sections of it are completely basically open drains. And this is without exception, all cities, whether you talk about the Yamuna in Delhi, the Mullah um in Mumbai, then Prishpavati in Bangladesh, Bangalore, and so on and so forth. The second, so all of them, in groundwater, I would say it's a little better. In the sense, we have a lot of geogenic contaminants, which are that means, naturally occurring, but nonetheless problematic, like fluoride and, uh, and arsenic. But I, I would say that number is probably 50-50. Um, in terms of groundwater the numbers are there about it's about 25 30 percent which are in the overexploited critical state in the country which is problem which is a huge problem and the reason it's a huge problem is because not i say that the problem with our over exploitation problem is because it's not really a water problem it's a jobs problem my my bigger concern is it's isn't it, is not that we are overexploiting exploiting water the fact is that we have 600 million farmers uh Half of them are uh, rain fed and don't have any source of irrigation. And the others are completely dependent on these overexploited aquifers. And the bigger question for me is what are these people actually going to do in the next 30, 40 years uh, when we, you know, the groundwater becomes completely unviable and rain fed agriculture or substance agriculture is just not a way of life? They're all going to end up in slums in the city. And so I think of the groundwater statistic or the overexploitation statistic much more as a jobs problem, saying it's a livelihoods problem rather than a water problem by itself. Because theoretically, if you know we, we would be able to like import a bit of rice and you know not grow water intensive crops in dry places and so on, and ban that and we would still be food secure as a country. And we'd be sort of able to manage it. But the problem is the reason we allow those very water intensive activities, particularly in agriculture, is because there are farmers whose livelihoods depend on it. So I know that was not the answer you were looking for. I think of the urban problem as being a solvable problem. It just takes a little bit of money, common sense, and um, and, a little bit of technology thrown at it. The rural problem I see as being a much more complicated problem because it's very, very fundamental uh, in terms of the nature and structure of the economy itself.
0: That gives me a lot of hope. Uh, again, a layman's question. You said 25% is critical. Does that mean that in about 25 to 30% of the places we are close to running out of groundwater? Yes. That's what it means, right? Yes. Wow. Okay. You know, moving on to the urban side of it, uh, and I'm glad you said that it, it seems like a solvable problem, at least. At this point in time, um, you know, the urban water bodies, you mentioned many rivers. I grew up in Chennai, which is home to Kuom, which was a river which was actually vibrant. And we had transportation on it up until, you know, the early 70s. Right? Whatever has happened is a, the fact that it is like a drain is, a, is a more of a last 30 year problem than it was before. Right. I live in Delhi now, and I'm exposed to, to what's happening on on the Yamuna. You know these water bodies are probably the the only way by which someone living in an urban setting connects to water, right? And historically, I've seen a lot of initiatives right, that have been announced. I, I remember um, you know, when I was going to school in Chennai, I read newspaper articles about how the Kuom was going to be cleaned. and uh, same with the with Yamuna. And today I'm a forty year old man, and I still hear about these projects where these rivers are going to be cleaned. but visibly I don't see any change right maybe there is maybe there isn't you would know better but uh, my question is has there been any success stories are there any silver lining here that you've seen in terms of how an urban state or an urban city has solved its water body problem
1: I mean there are a lot of uh, very very small success stories Um, including in Bangalore you know we have the Jakob Lake for example very close to where we are where they diverted the sewage into a sewage treatment plant on the shores of the lake uh, and the treated wastewater is let into the lake. It's not perfect because Jakob still has episodes of some raw sewage getting in and getting in. But overall, it's still considered a success story. And the reason it's considered a success story is because you basically prevented completely raw sewage and primarily sort of treated sewage from getting in. So there are many examples of this kind of uh, uh, situation. Um, I would say that the problem is scalability, right? In the sense that Chakut particularly has a very, very active citizen group and they really pay close attention to the lake and the lake health and so on and so forth. But to solve this problem at the uh, scale that you're talking about, of end- because as I said, you know, I've said through this interview, it's not an unsolvable problem. It's fundamentally a solvable problem. I genuinely believe that we have the money and we have the technology and Actually, we even have the political will. So, I don't even think any of those are issues. Some of it, I feel, is that we've just not aligned all of our different agencies to work together. And we've not created the right kind of uh, incentive structure for everybody to work in concert and solve the problem. So, one of the things we're particularly bad at in India is we are very bad at getting groups of different people who are all capacitated and mandated to do different things to come to a room and all agree to pull in the same direction and a lot of it is that's all it is it's just all I mean like I said London was considered you know the Thames was considered to be a complete sewer about 50 years ago and now it's a pleasant place where people go boating so it's not unsolvable and as I said we have enough money Um, so I really think that some of this other issue of how do you create institutional alignment that's where the challenge lies and that's where the effort is needed. We don't need new shiny technologies. We don't need, you know, crazy amounts of money. If you look at the quantum of money we've spent, whether through Jal Mission or any of these amrits or any of these programs, it's quite adequate. So I think it's really about making all those little pieces work where, you know, the regulators checking for the right parameters. Everybody agrees on what the standards are. One of the big pieces that I think is a roadblock right now if you go to any city, whether it's Chennai Metro Water or Delhi Jal Board or Bangalore Water Supply and Sewage Board, all of them, the water utility gets money for supplying you water. It doesn't get extra money for treating your sewage. And if you look at it from the water utility's perspective, I mean, for them, they that sewage treatment is just a, it, it's a cost center. I mean, mm. they so they're going to drag their feet, uh, you know, till the last very possible minute to do it. But imagine if you had to pay X, for water, but if you had a sewage connection, right away you pay two x or 1.8 x. If you're saying 80% of your sewage, then right away the the and the sewage only the uh, uh, you know uh, water supply and sewage utility only got paid if they actually treated that water to standard. Otherwise, they didn't get it. There was some kind of a system. Then it would immediately align everything in the right direction. But that's a very simple example of systems being set up to not deliver on that promise that we want them to.
0: It's an intuitively, stunningly simple concept, right? What you just said. Because if I'm um, also charged for the output of the water, then I will automatically, you know, correlate my input and then optimize it, right?
1: And automatically you would invest in switch treatment at the apartment complex level. You would kind of do all of that stuff.
0: Extraordinary. (laughs) You know, um, know, this has been eye-opening. But we usually end the episode by asking our guest, Um, if you were to suggest one thing that someone listening to this uh, episode can do one thing or three things um, that uh, we can do ourselves today, right? Uh, As an action point, um, you know, targeted towards a better water security for this country, what would that action be?
1: I mean, for individual households, I would say, uh, be more aware of where you're getting your water from. And the extent to which if you live in an RWA or so on, if you are able to kind of ensure that some of those loops are closed in the sense that if you have a wastewater treatment plant, it's functioning properly, so on and so forth. If you have uh, leaks in your pipe system in this building, you know, that you fix that. So that's all you can do as a resident of an individual house or an apartment. But as a system of people who can kind of move policymakers, the one thing that I would say is align incentives that will and create incentives in the system that would engender more wastewater treatment and, and underground sewerage, which is not what we have at the moment.
0: Great. Vina, thank you so much for your time and good luck with all the extraordinary work you're doing.
1: Thank you so much and thanks for inviting me. Pleasure chatting with you. Our
2: pleasure Hey everybody's been another great week on the IBM Podcast Network. On Advertising Is Dead, Varun speaks with Shashank Mehta, founder and CEO of The Whole Truth Foods. He shares his own journey of moving from eating mostly junk food to starting an enterprise that produces health foods with clean ingredients. These simplified hosts explore the fascinating topic of mimetic theory and entrepreneur Peter Thiel's interpretations of how anthropologist Rene Girard speaks about it. On Puliyabazi Pranay Sorab analyzed how organic farming has affected Sri Lanka. Marathi Kirgithun has a fascinating episode where the Deshpok's Met Decode, one of India's most celebrated poems. And on Say No to Drama, Chetna unfolds some truths about getting a promotion and the drama around it. Do follow us on social media. We're Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you're enjoying this show or any of our other shows for that matter, please do tell a friend. Also, don't forget to rate us on any of the platforms you might be listening to us on. And do check us out on YouTube. We're building a whole bunch of different channels. You can find them on IVMPodcast.com slash YouTube. And we're also doing a small listener survey, which we would really appreciate your help with. It helps us kind of talk to advertisers. So you could go to IVMPodcast.com slash survey. It'll just take a couple of minutes and it would be really... Really, really helpful to us. We do appreciate this. And finally, we'd like to thank our sponsors this week SBI Life Insurance and the India Water Portal. Thank you so much for making this possible.
1: What is the workplace and how does your gender and body affect your right at work? Hey, I'm Priya Mirza, and on the Longest Constitution podcast, we critically examine the vision of the Indian Constitution and laws. In Season 1, we looked at sex, gender, sexuality in India and the landmark judgments which transformed our rights as citizens in this country. In Season 2, we discussed the laws which shape the workplace and examine how ability, competence and merit impact us and much more. Join me, Priya Mirza, every Wednesday only on the IVM Podcast app website and all the major podcast streaming platforms.